last week, we looked at the subject of the day of rest, the Sabbath, and the Lord's day. And we started by talking about the Sabbath and what it meant in the Old Testament. And the things that were really startling about that was that the Sabbath had to do with provision. It had to do with miracles. It had to do with signs of wonders. The Sabbath had to do with God defeating our enemies on our behalf. The Sabbath was more than just taking a day off and not doing anything. Uh, There were strict rules about the Sabbath, but in the context of the Old Testament, the Sabbath was setting up, setting us up for the day when Jesus would come and in him we would find our rest. And the book of Hebrews chapter 6 talks about that so powerfully, so magnificently. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting there to that text in a couple of weeks. Uh, maybe a little more than that, three weeks. Uh, by the way, Farah is preaching next Sunday morning on missions. And uh, just would love to have all of you just consider sharing a missionary offering next week. Uh, usually we just have missionary offerings whenever uh, some a missionary guest comes through. But we'd really like you to consider just bringing a missionary offering on a more regular basis. Anyway, so let's get into the word of the Lord this morning. John chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Now, in this passage of Scripture, uh, the passage of the Gospel, John chapter 5, it's like like something happens here. Something that changed forever the way people saw Jesus. Uh, Years ago, I was... uh, we moved to Labrador, my wife and I, and our son was only one years old at that time. And uh, we came to a place, and there were some books in the library by Winston Churchill. And he did five books on World War II. The first book was called The Gathering Storm. And I remember reading that and all the things that led up to World War II. And then the, the third book was called The Turn of the Hinge. And I remember reading that with, I read all five books, with, but with great interest. And, and the imagery of a hinge turning, which meant that things were going from really, really bad. So many of the uh, destruction of the shipping going across to uh, Europe, uh, to England, and so many boats being torpedoed, and, and just every reversal you could possibly imagine. It seemed like wherever the Nazis went, they just won battle after battle, and they took pieces of land and nations after nations. And, and suddenly, there, there, or there came a time when the hinge turned, and it started going for the good. Well, it worked the opposite for Jesus. The turn of the hinge for him meant things went from, well, they went from what would have been good to really bad. And this is the passage where it begins. Anyway, so John chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. It doesn't tell us which one. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, the big pillars. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind the lame and the para- and and uh, the paralyzed now uh, i'm going to share something with you that uh, will start to make sense in a little while but verse 5 or verse 4 in some of the older manuscripts or the older texts like the king james talks about an angel coming to the pool and stirring the water And whoever gets in there first gets healed. Well, when you look at the history of Bible translation, you find that in the earliest manuscripts, there is no verse 4 that talks about the angel of the Lord coming and troubling the water and somebody being healed. In fact, you, you don't see anything like that in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, the idea of the, all these, all of these people 
by this pool of Bethesda, and, and God heals one of them, and it's only first one in gets the prize. The rest of you, too bad. Just wait for it to happen again. Well, it doesn't really add up when it comes to Jesus, because whenever wherever Jesus went, he healed everybody. And so it, it just didn't seem keeping with the whole idea of God. Now, what did happen at this time was the Greek god by the name of Asclepius, I think I'm saying his words right, uh, properly, uh, and, and he had, uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans had about 400 pools that they called Asclepions. I had, thought I had the pronunciation down right, but I, I, I'm not doing too well with it right now. So what would happen is, these, this was, uh, Asclepion was a, a shrine or a pool to the god Asclepius, who was the god of healing, a Greek god, a false god. And they were, these pools were scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. Now, uh, these were places of refuge for the downtrodden, the disadvantaged due to dis disease and disabilities. And, and here it was believed that a, a person could find mercy, comfort, and healing from the Greek god Asclepius. Now, uh, he had, apparently, two daughters. This is Greek mythology. Hygieia and Panacea, and you've heard those names before. Uh, well, in fact, uh, they talk about uh, hygiene, Hygieia, and Panacea, which is uh, medical cures for diseases. In fact, if you go to the second slide, uh, we have, you see these here? This is, uh, this is Asclepius on the left. Have you seen that sign? It's a, a sign you'll see in medicine. And, uh, and then the other uh, is also part of Greek, uh, well, part of our culture today. We have um, in our medical literature, our medical symbols, we have these symbols. They're common. And um, they represent healing. Interesting how modern medicine has taken symbols of Greek gods instead of the symbol of Jesus, the healer. Uh, anyway, that's just something to think about. So there's an awful lot more I could say about that. You can do research and find out that this was a, this pool of Bethesda, which was how it was said in Aramaic, how it was said in Greek literature, was a little different than that. But it's this pool, it's an Asclepion, it's the pool of for the healing power of Asclepius, the great god of healing. He was supposed to be, in mythology, the son of Zeus, the king of the gods. And Zeus apparently got quite jealous about him because he was becoming very popular through his healings. And so he plotted to have him killed and murdered his own son. Well, where did Jesus go when he came into the city? The pool Bethesda was just not too far away. It was just outside the gate of Jerusalem. It wasn't actually a part of the ancient city, but it was in short walking distance to the temple where the festival was taking place. So here's Jesus coming into the city. It's a time of celebration, and in the ancient traditions of his people, Israel, and here's the temple, and here's a pool to the false god. Where does he go? He goes to the pool of the false god. And there he finds all of these broken, wounded, hurting people who really never found an answer through their quest to find healing through the false god of Asclepius. And Jesus goes there. Interesting. Um, and verse, the, the third slide, John 5, verse 5 to 6. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? All right, so here he is at this pool with these people of coming looking for answers and for which they never get any. 
And he comes to this one man who is obviously very, very, very ill uh, for 38 years in a condition, in an invalid condition. And he asks him the question, do you want to get well? And it's like, it's kind of stating the obvious. He wouldn't have been there if he didn't want to get well. Uh, but Jesus asked him that question anyway. The man had no idea who he was talking to. He had no idea what was going to happen in just a few seconds from then. But uh, the, the man, uh, man is just listening. Uh, do you want to get well? Who is this guy? Why would he be asking me this? Well, Jesus did it for a very important reason. Whenever Jesus comes into our lives, for whatever reason, he never just violates our will. Or says, listen, I'll do this for you, and heals the man. He comes and honors our choice. And in honoring our choice to say yes to Jesus or no to Jesus, he's really honoring our personhood. He's elevating who we are in his eyes. To think that the God who created everything and Jesus and his son, his son would come to you, would come to me, would come to the people of this world and say, I... I do you want to be well? Do you want me to do something for you? He never violates us. And in so doing, uh, this man was treated like a real person. He wasn't just a castaway, some guy who just constantly came to the pool and, and people go by and say, oh, too bad. Maybe some people would throw him some alms or something. But it was just kind of like he was hopeless 38 years after all. And, and at that time, people didn't live real long lives so that he would have been probably closer to the end of his life. Well, um, hmm. verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to keep to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Now, did the water actually stir? And yes, it did. There was a, a way in which the aqueducts, the, the the, the keeper of the pool would turn on some water and would come down into the pool and it would look like it was being stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, did some people get healed? Is there healing power in the devil's hands? The Bible talks about signs and wonders that can deceive us because they're, they're truly signs and wonders, but they don't come from Jesus. And so we need to be very careful about that. The man had faith in the pool. He, he had faith in a false god to meet his need. Uh, well, I'm trying to get in. Somebody goes ahead of me. Now, the guy is a Jew. We find that out later because Jesus beats him in the temple. So uh, here he is, the temple and the pool of Bethesda. That which should represent the true and living God and that which represents any number of false gods. Truth and falsehood. And they're par they, go, they, they go side by side. We need to be able to discern the difference. This man didn't. He, he couldn't understand that. It was absolutely a futile effort. But, but, but maybe he had been to the temple and the priests couldn't help him. They could offer the sacrifices and do all the religious things, but they couldn't heal him. There was no power, it seemed, in the temple to do that. And we find out why as we go through this passage. So where he should have found the help he needed, he didn't. And as I, as I look at that and I, I think of the church, and, and sometimes... Back in those days, we call it the Hellenization of the, the Jewish faith, and by that means the Greek influence. Uh, Hellenists are Greeks. So all of the mythology, all of the false gods, all of the idols of Greek culture so often came in, infiltrated the Jewish people. And God would appeal to them time and time again through the Old Testament. You can't mix with falsehood. You can't serve the idols of the nations. You can't get involved in all of their worship corruption, 
which involved so many times uh, sexual orgies and and even in some some cases the sacrifice of children uh, to appease a god. And the Lord kept saying over and over and over again to the people of Israel, there is only one God. There's only one way. There's only one source of love. There's only one source of true forgiveness. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet time and time again, they would lapse away from what was the manifest provision and presence of the, the almighty Jehovah God. And, and he had been with them through history, delivering them from uh, Pharaoh's brickyard through the time of Moses, all through the history of Israel, time and time again. The, the power of God to deliver was evidence, and a lot of these festivals were celebrations of those great acts of God on the behalf of the nation. And yet so often they lapsed into the opposite. And it seems like here in this story, you have the real, or what should be the real, and you have the opposite. And they're side by side. And the guy who's been an invalid for 38 years, he opts for the opposite because he's got just a good of a chance there, it seems, that uh, he would have had anywhere else. Do we do that? Do we compromise our faith with the intrusions of things of the world? Um, doctrines that the Bible refers to as doctrines of devils? And it's not my, it doesn't mean that somebody's coming along saying, worship the devil, but somebody's coming, coming alongside and say, here's a way in which you can engage yourself in new, all, new age kinds of things. The worship, uh, uh, there's so many different manifestations of it. It can be through something as innocent looking as yoga. Uh, it can be, there's just so many ways in which it, it can take place. I want to give you some references. I'm going to be giving it to the teens uh, as we study the Word of God as to how, how the truth and falsehood uh, can, be, can be parallels. The temple and the Bethesda pool, they, they both seem to be legitimate. In fact, Jesus went there, didn't he? And yet, it seems like we, we miss out on a clear distinction of what's true and of what's false, what's right and what's wrong. And then we wonder, why, why isn't God moving by his spirit? Why aren't we seeing the power of God happening in, uh, more than it, it is? And so we're called to not love the world or the things that are in the world, but to come out from the world and to be separate from it and to serve the Lord our God. In the Old Testament, it was the Sabbath principle that established that as a religious policy, if you will. And it, it wasn't designed by God to be permanent. It was designed by God that through the period known as the law, the law was given to manage sin because man had become so corrupt. But there was going to come a time when someone greater than the law, a covenant that so exceeded in every way what the law, through human effort and keeping the law, failed to do over and over again. When the new came, it wouldn't fail because... It wasn't dependent on us. It was provided by Jesus, who shows up at this pool to this guy in need. Well, um, John 5, 16 to 18. Went too far. Uh, John 5, 8 to 10. <laughs> Next slide. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Hmm. Now, Jesus didn't say, listen, son, your theology is all messed up. You shouldn't even be here. This is a pool that's 
dedicated to a false god. There's nothing here. Uh, let me tell you the real true way of Israel, and let me tell you the real true way of who I am. He didn't upbraid him for his goofed-up understanding of things. And that kind of is comforting. Do you find that a little comforting? <laughs> Have you ever really thought something, and it's okay to do this, and then afterwards you did it, and you realize, oh, dear. And the Bible tells us if we ask wisdom from God, he will give it to us freely, and he never scolds us for our past mistakes. In the King James, James language, he says, he never upbraids us. That sounds like a hairdo, but... It's not what it meant in the King James language. He never scolds us. So Jesus didn't say, man, you're so goofed up. Uh, maybe if you get your theology straight, I'll be able to help you. But no, he just says, get up. Hmm. Those two words would have been absolutely opposite to anything he ever heard in his life. Because no one he had met, be it in the temple or at the pool of the false god, no one ever, ever dared say that to him because no one had the authority. No one could have said it and it would have worked. But when Jesus says it, it worked. It works. And sometimes... When we're moping around in our despair and all of the pressures of life that could come in and this has gone wrong and that's gone wrong and, and we start to go into a pity party. And you know what? You know what's cool about a pity party? Is none of the invited guests stay away. They all come. The problem is when you have a pity party, you're the only guest. So you can't stay away. Then there's just no disappointment because nobody else comes. You're just wallowing in your pity. <laughs> what does God say to us? He says, get up. Does he say, you shouldn't feel that way? Haven't I told you again in the past and past that I'm with you always to the end of the world and my peace I give to you? My peace is not like the world gives, but it can't, the world can't take it away. It's yours. And time and time again, you've been blessed. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, you can do all things through me because I strengthen you. Don't you remember? He doesn't do that to us. He just says, get up. And maybe, yes, by his spirit, he would remind you of his promises and his provision. But he's not there to scold us. Thank God for his mercy. Amen? Thank God for his mercy. Because his mercy is not getting what we deserve. And thank God for his grace, we get what we don't deserve. Well, um, Jesus was and is an invasion of love. Not just something loving, but pure and absolute, unadulterated love. And so what this man encountered was not just the inglorious presence of a man who could do what nobody else could do, but he was, he was encompassed. He was encapsulated by love. And so have you. And so have I. And sometimes we don't recognize it, but it is true. And we might be compromising, like this guy did. He didn't, I don't think he really understood he was compromising, but sometimes we do that and we do it deliberately. And regardless, he comes to us with love. Hallelujah. I, I, I feel like a dance coming on. Close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. <laughs> it was great. You can open your eyes now. Uh, now, if you're laughing because you had your eyes open and saw that I didn't dance, shame on you. Uh, <laughs> anyway, 
I might not be able to dance on the outside like I once could, but I can still dance on the inside. And some of you that can dance on the outside should do both. One of the things we not none of us should do is despair because we don't have help or love or grace or the things we need because in Jesus we have it all. Amen? And then he says, pick up your mat and walk. All right, now, think about it. You've been an invalid for 38 years, and suddenly the power of God's healing comes through your body, and there you are. You get up, and you've never felt this way before since maybe you were just a little child. His Bible doesn't say he was born with this infirmity. And, and there you are. What do you feel like doing? Well, <laughs> you feel like jumping, running, leaping, dancing, shouting. And what does Jesus say? Pick up your bed. Pick up your mat. Like, it's like giving you the reason to celebrate like you've never had before, and then you get encumbered by having to carry something. Um, well, there was a reason, and it really didn't have anything to do with this guy carrying a mat. It had something to do with what Jesus was bringing about that was going to be the turn of the hinge. It was going to be the separating point in his life when it came to who he was and the religious traditions of his time. And sometimes we need that hinge to turn in our lives where we realize this is not just a function of religious exercise, but it's a powerful connection with the Creator who ordained the Sabbath for all the reasons He did, and then He overruled those and brought attention to Himself in such a way that caused Him uh, to be hated and eventually be put to death. Well, uh, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. So uh, he goes to the temple and there he, the Jewish leaders see him and recognize him. Hey, you're the guy. What happened to you? Well, I got healed. How did you get healed? Well, this man told me to get up, and I got up, and I'm healed. And who was it? I don't know. And why are you carrying your mat? Because he told me to. Well, <laughs> um, was Jesus concerned about littering? Was he into uh, don't leave garbage laying around on the property? Uh, put it in a garbage can? or You know, obviously not. I mean, he would be concerned about those things, but that's not what this was about. Now, in Jeremiah, and I don't have this on the screen, but I'm going to read you a text from Jeremiah chapter 7. This is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your ancestors. Yet they did not listen or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and would not listen or respond to discipline. Hmm. But if you are careful to obey me, declares the Lord, and bring no load through the gates of this city on the Sabbath, but you keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of the city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem and this city will be inhabited, uh, 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 and those living in Jerusalem and this city will be inhabited forever. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Jeremiah is reminding them, don't you dare carry a mat on the Sabbath. Whatever you do, don't carry it out of your house or through the city gates or any load whatsoever. You just don't do that because it's a holy day unto the Lord. So Jesus says to this guy, I brought this here for a drink. Might as well 
follow through. He says to this guy, get up and take up your mat and walk or run or do whatever. So he comes into the temple (laughs) carrying his mat. How dare you desecrate this place this way? How dare you bring that which the Lord prohibits, the law prohibits, which religious tradition prohibits, into the house of the Lord? Now, maybe they didn't notice the guy had been healed. Well, they did, because that's why they asked him who healed him or what happened to him. But once they find out it's Jesus, it makes no difference whatsoever to them. They say, it's the Sabbath. And you're not allowed to do that. So suddenly, there is this terrible confession that they made, and it's very easy for us to make. Religious rules trump Jesus and his will and who he is and what he wants from us. And when we get into Hebrews 6, we see Jesus is our day of rest. He is our Sabbath. And so we can do the same thing in a different way in which we compromise. And not just on a day of the week, but in our lives generally. They missed. They missed. It was a beautiful thing. Uh, What it signified because of a preconceived idea. Oh, my. How many times have I had an opportunity to be blessed of God, but I've put up my own wall because of a preconceived idea I had? How many times has the church not really moved forward the way it could have had I as the pastor seen things a little differently? How many times do we put others in a box of our making Here's this guy. He had every reason for them to slap in his, slap him on the back and way to go get the rest of them down there by that pool of the false god. And, 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 and we'll find Jesus, take him down there. We'll f- see the whole bunch uh, healed and we'll bring him up to the temple and we'll offer sacrifices of praise to God, which is what they were called to do. It was a festival after all. But no. It's the Sabbath, and you can't do what you did. Now, why did Jesus do this? Was he being hypocritical? Was he when he knowing that the law said one thing, and he deliberately instructed somebody else to do the opposite? To them, they would have sure seen that way. If this man is a truly a true rabbi, he would never have told this guy to do what he did. So. <laughs> What was it? In verses 11 to 15. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up and pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. But later Jesus found him at the temple. And he said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something Worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him, made him well. Stop sinning. Okay, does that mean that our righteousness is based upon us not sinning? He was healed by Jesus, but if he slipped once, does that mean he's lost it all? What did Jesus mean when he said, stop sinning? Well, the idea of sin in the Bible is to fall short of something, to not measure up to the mark of what is possible. Now, it's not possible for us to forgive us, to give ourselves of our sins. It's not possible for us to live a righteous life without the help of Jesus. But it is possible for us to come to him. It is possible for us to come and embrace his salvation and his Holy Spirit and all the good gifts that he has for us. Those are well within the realm of possibilities. And so what Jesus was saying is, your temptation is to go back to Eclipius, the false gods of this world, to go back to your old ways, to do what you used to do, 
to practice the ideas they used to practice, to say, thank you, Jesus. I really appreciate what you did. <laughs> I'll be at the tavern next Friday. Or I'll be doing this, or I'll be doing that, or the other. I'll be sure to tell everybody about what you did for me, but that's where I'm going to be. And maybe that's okay. In fact, it is okay if that's why you're there, to tell them about Jesus. Go to the tavern all you want. But if it's a matter of just going back to your own ways, serving the old false gods, doing what you used to do, the same old, the same old, Jesus said, if you do that, you'll lose what you've got. And how many of us, how many churches have done that? How many churches have known the power and the blessing of God, but then they've let tradition come in, they've let false ideas come in, and sometimes the things you hear these days about what's being practiced in some churches is just absolutely confounding. One of the things I am really committed to is taking our teens and sharing them with the principles of God for one ultimate purpose. And that is, if I could impart one gift upon them, it's not whatever knowledge I might have gleaned over many years of serving the Lord and studying His Word. As important as that is, the best thing I possibly can do for our kids and for the church, for our children, is to create a sense of discernment of what is right and what is wrong. To discern what is true and what is false. To serve what is truly valuable to live for. And to separate ourselves from those things that just put us on the same old treadmill. It's going, you're expending energy, but you ain't going anywhere. <laughs> Some of you will remember Evie. Uh, the Swedish singer, Tornaquist, I think was her name, something like that, back in the 60s, 70s. Remember Evie? I'm only four foot 11, but I'm going to heaven, and it makes me feel 10 feet tall. Remember that song she sang? And she sang this song. Come on, ring those bells, light the Christmas tree. Jesus is the king. We did that here, opened it the living tree with her singing that song year after year after year. I used to just love her singing. And one of the songs she sang was this. Are you tired of chasing pretty rainbows? Are you tired of running round and round? Pack up all the empty dreams of your life and at the feet of Jesus. Lay them down. Give them all. Give them all. Give them all to Jesus. It was a beautiful song. And it so reflects what Jesus was saying to this man. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't go back to the systems, to the friends, to the ideas. Because if you do, something worse could happen to you. Well, anyway. Asclepius has all kinds of friends in this world. How's our time? Pardon me? 20 to 12. Okay, that was my introduction. Are you ready for the message? Uh, here, here it is. And actually, um, I'm coming to it. Um, verses 16 to 18. Just a couple more passages. So because... Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In, the, in his defense, Jesus said to them, now listen to this. Like this is, whew, for them this was absolute blasphemy. It was one thing to say, it's okay, I, okay, I told the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. It's quite another thing to say this. My father is always at his work. Huh? My father is always at his work. I thought he rested on the seventh day. Well, rest for him really wasn't about exhaustion and need, uh, the need for rejuvenation. Rest was him for, was for him was to celebrate what he had created, to come into relationship 
with the highest form of creation, and that's humankind. And so rest for him was to come and to take time after time after time with all of his, his creation who would love and serve him and enjoy that. And so he said, my father is always at his work to this very day. His work is the constant provision of what he has created in the first place to sustain it, be it polluted by sin and destined for judgment. Nevertheless, there's coming a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. That is not over because we see the downward spiral into sin and destruction. But he's still working. He's still working. He hasn't quit. He didn't say, I'm going to find a new employer. I'm fed up with this job. No, <laughs> he's not fed up with us. He's still working. And, and, for, and, and he says, and I too am working. Oh, who do you think you are? You, you've given yourself license based upon your understanding of, our, of, of God, and you dare to impose that upon us? For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, here's the issue. Either he was or he wasn't equal with God. Either was he was just some self-aggrandized man who says, I'm just as good as whoever, and set himself out to, uh, to just call people to follow him. He's just like so many people uh, since then who've had followers for both good and bad reasons, I guess. But wait a minute. He wasn't just saying that God was his father. He was doing the things that his father did. He was creating something out of nothing. He would take a man whose hand was withered and deformed and suddenly create something that wasn't there. Who but God can do that? So time and time again, and he would raise the dead. When every other natural law says that doesn't happen, but Jesus was not subjugated or subject to natural law or the rules of men. And so the blind saw. The lame walked. The deaf heard. The dead were raised. The broken and wounded were healed. So did he have some basis upon which he could say, me and my father, we work together and we don't care if it's the Sabbath or not because and <laughs> there's another text where Jesus says, and I won't get into it this morning, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Wow. Uh, last slide. John 5, 19 to 23. And here's the crux of the matter when it's all said and done. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. <laughs> like, give me a break. A guy healed for 38 years, didn't, uh, sick for 38 years, an invalid, and now he's walking in the temple carrying his mat, and that doesn't amaze you. The only thing you see is that he's carrying his mat, and it happens to be on the Sabbath. What's it going to take to amaze people? What's it going to come to this to change this world where so often God has, re, has visited revival after revival and overture after overture to a world that's lost and it's gone its own way and it's like nothing amazes us anymore or nothing really did 
except for a few, I guess. Well, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives him life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Oh, man. You think they hated him because of what he said in the last few verses. I'm the one who has the charge of life, and I decide who gets it and who doesn't. Moreover, the Father judges no one. Huh? God is our judge, not man, not anyone else. But he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. God who judges everything has given everything to me to judge. Uh, You know, Jesus never took the Dale Carnegie course, how to influence people, how to, you know, to say the right things. He never took a course in political correctness. (laughs) But he heard what his father said, and that's what he said and did. Wow. That all, and the reason, notice this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And this is the crux of the matter. As Christians, our quest in life is to honor the Lord. This Wednesday, I'm going to talk to the scenes about idolatry. And it's going to be a little different than what, what you might think. Because uh, idolatry f- takes on forms other than what we think often. So we honor the Lord. We don't bow down to the false gods of this world. And some things that, aren't, that have nothing wrong with them in and of themselves can actually become a false god if it intrudes upon our worship of Jesus. It can be your job. You can misplace the honor you give to the Lord by dating an unsaved boy or an unsaved girl if you're a teenager. Finding ways in which you can uh, do the thing you want to do instead of the thing that he wants you to do. One of the reasons we brought Tim Watley here for the teens last fall, or last spring, I guess, uh, was for them to open their hearts to hear not just stories, amazing stories about the mission field, but the amazing call of God upon their lives because God has a purpose for every team, every child. Uh, one guy said, you know, when did you get saved and what were you doing before you got saved? Well, he said, well, I'll tell you what, I, I won't get into what I was doing, but I can tell you this. I was saved from a life of alcoholism, drunk, drunkenness. I, I hurt people. I abused people. I, I, was this, I was saved from a life of being the worst kind of scoundrel you can uh, possibly imagine. And, and, and so how old were you when you got saved? I got saved when I was five. And God saved me from doing any of that. <laughs> Aren't you glad? That a child can know the Lord. A child can know Holy Spirit. A child can be filled with the Spirit of God. A teenager, a young adult, someone all through their adult years into their senior years. It doesn't matter who we are, how old we are, or where we are. We can experience the glorious life of Jesus here and now that can save us from what Jesus said to the man. Whatever you do, don't go back there. Amen? Worship team, come, will you? As we look at this closing time, if you're here this morning and you've found your own pool of Asclepius, where you're giving yourself your time, your energy, your efforts into something that's not taking you anywhere, (laughs) what was true then for this man is true today. He comes to your pool of Bethesda. 
comes to the place where you've sought help in places other than the real source of help. Aren't you glad for that? Come on, aren't you glad for that? That (laughs) he is so gracious, so kind. The encounter that this man had with love was something that he couldn't describe. I don't know who he was. (laughs) All I know is he told me to take up my mat. (laughs) The incredulity of Jesus, the absolute awesomeness of who he is. How do you really describe it? Or him, rather, to anyone. How do you really describe what it means to be saved to a person who isn't saved? If there's one takeaway that we can leave with here this morning, it's, well, there's several, I'm sure, but there's one that I hope would grip us. Let's find a few pools of Bethesda this week. Let's find some folks who are broken and hurting and in need of love. This man didn't need a sermon from Jesus, and he didn't get one. What he needed was compassion and love. And the world out there still needs that same compassion and love. And we are his hands extended. We are the ones who are his ambassadors. We are the ones called to serve. We're called to sacrifice. Jesus didn't care what was going to happen to him. He was going to stand for the truth. He was going to present the truth. And though they plotted to kill him and hated him all the more for everything that he said and did, he did it anyway and he said it anyway. Oh, that God would give us that kind of conscience that kind of purpose stand and sing if you need prayer this morning feel free to come and uh, we'll pray for you maybe this morning there's someone here that says I need to give my life to Christ I need to begin a, a journey of following him come on up and let us pray for you or maybe you're struggling with something and you say I gotta get away from this pool that I'm at and I gotta go and I need some help to get me there Well, come on. That's what the church is for. That's what the body of Christ is for.